Well, like I said, we're going to start Colossians today, and I really appreciate Tim Ryan and Drew filling in with me for me for a while, and I had great <clears throat> aspirations of being 10 lessons ahead by the time I started back, and of course, in my procrastinating life, um, that didn't happen, so um, we're just going to plug along, and today I'm, I'm going to read a lot, not in the scriptures, but just from my notes, because starting a new study, it, it always helps me in understanding why the author wrote the book or the letter to, to look at the general features of the history, the, the geography, the people, the culture of the people, and the, uh, the culture of the Christians that were there and the culture of the non-Christians that were there. That's one of the things that I've really appreciate when Shane starts a new study for us in in worship that he takes several weeks usually and and dives into the great historical background of the area. So we're going to do that this morning with this one. And <clears throat> this letter actually mentions three cities, not just Colossae, but Laodicea and Areopolis. And there's a lot of names in my notes here that I know I'm going to botch. I'll never be able to say them the right way. So just bear with me if, uh, if, if you say, well, that's not the way you say that. Um, I, um, I'm not real good at pronouncing things like that. I remember one time, and most of you all have probably heard this before, but I was saved two weeks, I think it was, in was 38 years old and didn't grow up in the church. So, I mean, I, these Bible names, these are all new to me. And uh, they came in our Sunday school class and they said, um, we need some volunteers in the nurseries packed out this morning. Is there anybody that would like to volunteer? Somebody just kind of walked in the door and said that. So me and Kit said, we'll go. So we went and we got down there. And this little boy said to me, um, Mr. Tim, would you read me a book? I said, sure. And he brought me the book of Jonah and the whale. And I, he sits down in my lap and I said, God told Jonah to go to Nine Bay. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Mr. Tim, it's not Nine Bay, it's Nineveh. It's like, oh, okay. But, you know, so I look at these words and I, you know, I kind of say them phonetically, which, you know, as English goes, that usually... <laughs> doesn't work. So so anyway, these three cities, Areopolis, Laodicea, Colossae, and uh, in Paul's day, these, these cities were part of the Roman province of, of Asia, which today is Turkey. Um, I didn't study history very well past the 10th grade, I suppose, and so it's interesting to me to look at the maps. I'm, I see one back there, uh, you know, we could look at, but, you know, it's just neat to see put it in a whole world perspective for me. So this is Turkey and, you know, all that's going on there today, it's been a busy place throughout history, right? And I think of all that was going on there and then what was going on over here at that time, right? Not a whole lot, but and Rome was a thousand miles away. And that, of course, depends on um, the way you got to Rome, which route you actually took. Have you ever been I remember one time Kit and I were traveling somewhere and and I looked at the GPS and it said it was this amount of miles and I didn't look very close because we had been driving and driving and driving and driving and driving and we weren't there and we should have been. And then I looked back at the GPS and then it, it said, as the crow flies. And I was like, well, if I were a crow, that'd be great. But 
really, you know, I mean, we'd been in the car like seven hours and we're not there. So uh, this was a thousand miles here, but depending on the route. And um, to the east and slightly south was Paul's birthplace of, of Tarsus. And, you know, again, I am just amazed at, at how this guy got around. Just amazed if you just look at the back of your Bible at the maps and see the routes that he took on his missionary journeys. And and I just really complained a couple weeks ago when I flew from here to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to Munich, Munich to Timisoara. You know, well, all that was done in well less than a day. And then you look at where, where how Paul traveled, right? And, I mean, I, I even flew economy comfort this time, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, think about that. This guy was really roughing it. So 1,000 miles there. Um, this, the region was called the, the Lycos Valley, and uh, there was a river, the Lycos River, that ran through there. It was uh, also known as the Little Meander, and it branched off of the big river, uh, which today is the Menderes River on present-day maps. Areopolis and Laodicea were located one on one side of the river and the other on the other side of the river six miles apart. And Colossae, however, straddled the river. And uh, it was 11 miles or so to the east and a little bit south of the other two. Um, the citadel, the fortified part of the city, was on the south bank. And the tombs, the cemetery, and the buildings of commerce and, and, and all were on the north side of, of the river. Um, it occupied a narrow valley of the, of the upper Lycos, Lycos depending on how you say it. It's, and just think of that, though, with the mountain ranges around. It was a beautiful place, strategically ro- located on the, the Cadmus mountain range, which uh, rose to the south. The Mossina range rose to the north. And if you've ever been in, the, you know, just think in your mind of, of, you know, a town down in a valley with those, I guess, north to south to me would be this way because north that way. And, you know, you got this town down here, just a beautiful setting, serene to walk outside and in either direction you looked, you would see the mountains. If mountains excite you, that would be a great place to live. The, the Eastern Highway passed through Colossae and, and that's because roads naturally uh, follow the valleys, right? Not many people go up and over, um, most times your roads, your rail, not there, but today, you know, your railroad is going to be down in the valleys. The history of this area was that uh, it was plagued by earthquakes. And I looked up more modern um, statistics on it. And, and since 1903, from 1903 to 1998, there were 37 earthquakes in this area. So that continues even today. And it's uh, built on a, uh, a belt of volcanic activity. And, I mean, we all know that earthquakes and volcanic activity, they spell disaster, right? But there is a great benefit. It wouldn't be to me, but to those that, that are there is volcanic ground is, is also very fertile ground. And so it's, there's a lot of grass and vegetation that grows because of that, which then in turn means great flocks of sheep were always grazing around. And um, that would be um, riches to the garment industry. And also, 
uniquely in this area, the waters are, of this valley are full of chalky deposits, which, from what I studied, these formations uh, would sometimes, in certain areas, if the water stood and then drained and stood and drained, that soil could become barren because of these chalky deposits. But the, that type of water is very advantageous for dyeing of wool. So you got the fertile ground there with these all these sheep, and then the water there is really good because of the chalky deposits for dyeing the wool. So you can see that this area, uh, all three cities prospered greatly with the um, uh, the economy of um, garment dyeing, I guess you would say it, right? So uh, nobody knows exactly when Colossae was founded, but we do know that uh, in the days of Xerxes, the king of Persia, that it was a thriving community. And historically, as you read certain people reporting a long, long time ago, 485-ish, uh, you know, that it was a thriving community at that point. Xerxes, uh, he was the, the Azaharius, if that's the way you say that, of the book of, of, of Esther. And that's the king. He was the king of Persia. And he's the one that removed Queen Vashti uh, because she refused to yield to his unreasonable demands. You can read that in Esther chapter 1, verse 10 and following. Well, he was quite the tyrant. And uh, he, he actually commanded the waters of this area, the Hellespont, today is called the Dardanelles. He, he, act, he, he commanded that the water be scourged with a whip 300 times. And he beheaded the workmen that were working to build a bridge to cross over it because a violent storm came through at that time. And the bridge that they were building, the first go at it, collapsed because of the storm. So he he commands the water to be lashed. And this is so well known. All I did was type in uh, Hellespont and uh, look at that. Feel my wrath, stupid river. That's him. That was on. That was on Google. Just boom, you know. And so, I mean, golly, that this guy's known for. That's pretty bad. That you're going to whip the river three hundred times. But even worse was that you would um, have the the men that were building the bridge have their heads cut off because of that. Um, the Dardanelles today is a narrow, natural strait, uh, very significant waterway in northwestern Turkey uh, that forms the uh, boundary between uh, Europe and Asia. Um, having conquered Egypt, Xerxes made extensive preparations for the invasion of Greece. You know, I mean, just think historically. I mean, isn't this just incredible that even, I don't know, I just think even then, way back then, you know, people were just power hungry. They couldn't be satisfied with what they had and where they were, right? But we're all like that too, aren't we? You know, that we just always got to have more. We're never content with what what God has blessed us with. So Xerxes, you know, he, he's going to invade Greece. That was his goal at that point. And uh, it's while he and his army were on their way toward the Hellespont, seeking to avoid difficult terrain, they passed through Colossae. You know, the mountains were too much. They're going through Colossae. Um, the Greek historian, can't say this guy's name, Herodotus, maybe, who in his history has given a vivid account of this, this area and that expedition. In the year 480 B.C., he calls Colossae a great city. 
of Phrygia. So, I mean, again, there, big, prosperous area. Well, Xerxes was followed by Artaxerxes from 425 to 465 B.C., who allowed Ezra, you remember him, allowed Ezra to lead a number of Jews back to Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the walls under the direction of Nehemiah. Shortly afterwards, Darius II began to reign over the tottering empire, and Darius and his wife had two sons born to them, Artaxerxes and Cyrus. Darius II was succeeded by his oldest son, Artaxerxes II. But this is really interesting. His younger brother, Cyrus, because of his conviction that he should have been the heir of the throne and by reason of grievance against Artaxerxes II in secrecy, he plans a revolt, gathering allies from all the surrounding regions, and he comes up with a contingent of 10,000 Greeks. And um, he, he was, uh, however, you know, one of those... Um, Whoops, <laughs> moments, I guess you could say. He's killed in a battle of Canoxa near the gates of Babylon. So now you got these 10,000 guys that he's gathered together and now they have no leader. Well, as it is, you know, Johnny on the spot, uh, this guy's name is really interesting, Xenophon. He's a bright young Athenian. He gains uh, uh, fame for himself as he takes these 10,000 Greeks and does a, a, a rapid retreat with them. So everybody looks at that and thinks, oh, look at the military prowess of this guy. He's able to, to maneuver these 10,000. And so he, he kind of becomes famous for uh, um, his military prowess, I guess you could say. So it was shortly after that that the beginning of this expedition, in the beginning of this expedition, while marching southeastward, that this army reaches Colossae. So can you imagine, uh, you know, 10,000 extra people just boom, right in your town um, all at once. And they they stayed there for seven days. And uh, he, Xenophon, in 401, calls Colossae a city inhabited and prosperous and great. So we can see that historically, this is a really good place, right? I mean, it would be a place that we would all want to go, you know, in, in relative size, population, strategic importance, economy. It's all going on there. And uh, it was on the highway that linked the east and west portions of Asia together. It was, um, it was the same road um, had what they called the Sicilian Gate, and that's a, that was a passageway through the mountain range there. So a lot of work had been done there. But because of that and the population, you know, people are going to spread out, and that's where uh, Laodicea and Areopolis come in. So Laodicea, the, the March of 10,000, demonstrated the weakness of Persia's vast, but as you can imagine in this time frame, very clumsy and, and uh, somewhat antiquated army. So Alexander the Great shows up on the scene, right, as you can imagine, and he saw the opportunity to grasp power here because these guys, they're not real. The guy that Cyrus that started the whole group of the 10,000, he's gone. Xenophon's got him. He got him from here to there. But, you know, they don't, they're not real modern. 
and they're very clumsy in their maneuvering. And uh, so Alexander the Great comes on, and interestingly, uh, he brought not only Greek dominion, but what would come with that? The Greek language, right? So think about that. that. This is a perfect example of our awesome God using a very sinful people to get the language, or you could just say to, to implement his plan into action, right? So he gets the Greek language brought in, and what do we know about the Greek language? What's the significance for us for that? Well, the whole text of the New Testament, that's the original language, right? So here you got God using sinful man to accomplish his will. And does it help you all to sometimes to realize that, that God uses sinful mankind to accomplish his will. Does that, have you, can anybody think of any other examples where that has happened historically? All of our presidents. Yes. All of our presidents, certainly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Anything else? How, you know, the leadership of the whole world, really, in one sense, is godless. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, do you struggle with that? You know, I, I mean, historically, you can see where Christians have struggled with that, right? And they want to change it all. But what passage of Scripture do we have that helps us understand that? Genesis 50. Genesis 50, all right, verse 20, I guess you're thinking of, with Joseph. Yeah. You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Um, pardon? Romans 13, right. That God establishes the governments. Isn't that interesting? You know, um, just think of, um, well, it wouldn't do any good, but just think of if somebody would uh, stand up and, you know, proclaim to all the people that are protesting now, you know, look, God's the one that did this, according to Romans 13. Of course, the people that are doing all that probably don't believe in God anyway. But, you know, wouldn't it be interesting, or it, I guess it, it should soothe and help us, right, to know that regardless of what's going on, I mean, how would we be reacting, you know, if the other party were there? You know, uh, would you be okay? You know, if your candidate's not um, the one that's elected, would you be okay, according to Romans 13? Um Sometimes that's challenging for us, but so. Just think about how many times he uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pharaoh started going back, and God was hardening his heart. Again. Yeah, and the purpose was for to release the uh, Israelites, right? Which the, 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 the yeah, the accomplishment of His will for His glory, right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know that. You know, and people can get into all these fatalistic mindsets with that kind of stuff. You know, my daughter recently had somebody kind of ask her that question, you know, kind of the old thing of if God already knows why I pray or, you know, if God's sovereign over everything, then I can just go out here at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning and cross 575. You know, I don't have to worry about getting hit. You know, if I'm not supposed to die, I won't. You know, I mean... Well, in all those things, like the deal with Joseph, you know, God is sovereign but he does give us something called responsibility. <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, if you think of Nehemiah, he had his soldiers, they had a trowel in one hand 
because they were doing the wall and they had a sword in the other, right? They were being responsible. And, uh, of course, I guess you could use the trowel, you know, you could smash them in the forehead and then hit them in the gut with it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we do have a responsibility. But, yeah, it's interesting that even back here we can see that God used this guy to bring in the Greek language into the world and uh, ultimately affect us to... There, I know there's some seminary guys in here that study Greek, and God bless you, and uh, we thank you, and your uh, those that have gone before you that have taken the painstaking task of turning it into English for those of us that are language uh, challenged. I think even the Roman soldiers at Christ's time, the ultimate yeah. defeat, seemingly Christ being killed, yeah. God used evil men. That's right, and he even... Yeah, yeah, and that's beautifully laid out in in uh, Acts, right? Of uh, um, yeah, so it, it gives it gives us hope. So, you know, when you think all things are just disintegrating in your life, you know, that's a good point to draw back and and just seek God and see how He's working and using those things in our lives. So. After Alexander the Great's death, his empire was divided into four parts. And you can study that in Daniel, chapter 8 in particular. And uh, it's, uh, the four parts were led by some of his uh, former officers. And after some time goes by, we're into 261 B.C. now, Antiochus II ruled over Syria. And uh, another guy named, uh, uh, I can't is it Ptolemy? Uh, in 246, he's ruling over Egypt. And these two kings, now this is really interesting. Um, these two kings, they, they come into an agreement with one another where Syria's king was going was to divorce his wife and marry the Egyptian king's daughter, Bernice. All right, you follow me? And, and the, the execution of this godless plan brought nothing but trouble. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 11. And at the same, I'm sorry, in the, the name of this vindictive, crafty, divorced wife was Laodice. And that's where you get the name uh, of the city, Laodicea, was named after her. So though Laodicea didn't prosper immediately upon um, its inception, once the Roman province of Asia was founded in 190 B.C., the city began to flourish and became a mighty center of industry. And uh, it became really well-known financially because they had sheep there that had black wool. You know, so you didn't have to dye those that wool from white to black. It was black, and, <laughs> and uh, they really prospered because of those. And it's interesting to look at all the different types of sheep that are in the world. You know, you got the long-haired ones, the curly-haired ones, the straight-haired ones, I suppose, and of various colors on top of that. So, so they became known for their fine black wool. And um, the road system changed a little bit right there as well, coming into that city. And a highway junction was there that brought the eastern highway in that met four other roads. So there was a huge intersection there of roads going to all these other regions. Made me think of, uh, so there were five roads that came together, the main road then split out, 
and there's a um, road over in Gwinnett County called Five Forks Trickham. Y'all ever heard of that? You know why that road's named that? Interesting tidbit of southern history. Because back in the moonshining days, this is true, back in the moonshining days when they would run moonshine in cars, you would go down that road uh, if the police were after you. And you come to the Five Forks and you would trick them. You know, they would think you'd go this way and you went that way. So, interesting. I wonder if they had a Five Forks trick them here. But these roads came together, which meant that they had a lot of trade, commerce, banking, riches, and political prestige. And because of this political prestige, the Romans made Laodicea the capital of this district, which actually then embraced 25 more smaller towns. And then there was Areopolis, and this was the more volcanic portion of the region. And um, when you have lot areas with lots of volcanoes, you have these uh, pits that emit. Uh, what's the word? That let out this these vapors, and you have springs, hot springs, right? And springs are supposedly have healing power, and many people. Uh, travel world round to go to springs. Um, there's, uh, I, I don't know what's in them. I didn't research that to where, I don't know if there's any validity to that. Do any of y'all know? We've got one right here, 90 miles from here or so, Warm Springs, Georgia. You know, that's where Roosevelt used to go. He had polio, I think it was, and he would go there and it, it soothed his body to get in the springs there. I don't know if there's any true medicinal uh qualities of those waters or not maybe one of y'all does um, I know that if I have a hard day recreating that I can put Epsom salt in the bathtub and it I mean it works you know okay I'll just it just does right um, the younger people probably think what in the world is Epsom salt and why would you put it in your bath but it does work on soothing tired, sore muscles. So whether or not these places um, really work uh, for rheumatism, gout, and some other things, I'm not so sure, but they sure make money off of them, right? So because of that, Areopolis had, they had spas. Uh, some of the more famous ones in the world, in Germany, there's one called Baden-Baden. I, you know, when I lived there, I remember seeing the signs for that all over the place. There's uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, Las Vegas Springs, White Sulphur Springs. They're all over the place. So Areopolis became a famous spa, a city full of these baths. And uh, I've seen pictures in Europe of, you know, they really go at it in these, these underground. They build these fancy facilities with this. But, um, again, I'm not sure if they really do have any healing powers or not, but uh, or not powers, but you know the minerals that would soothe. Yes, ma'am. Talking about Epsom salt spas. Uh huh. One in Bridge Mills. Is there? That has it's been reduced with a thousand pounds of Epsom salt. Now is that natural? Or no, I think they made it. They made it. Okay. Okay. Well, on top of the of the spas, they have. In Areopolis, they had a, a thing, and this threw me for a loop when I looked at the word, but it, it's plutonium, not the 
radioactive thing, but this is uh, means place of Pluto, and it was this huge hole in the ground that these nasty vapors would come out of. So much so that they said that if birds flew over it, they would die. You know, just wiped them out. It was that noxious, I guess you would say. Um, and, but it was called um, uh, a sanctuary dedicated to the ancient Greek and Roman god Pluto. That's where they got the name. So naturally, these springs in this deep cave brought lots of superstition onto the scene. People of that age connected superstition and with God, little g, and they dedicated things to these little g gods, and they worshipped there. And because of that, Areopolis had lots of temples. And uh, with all that was going on in these two cities, it's not surprising then that Colossae, which didn't have all this, even though it was so close in proximity, it began to... Uh, kind of lose popularity and people began to move towards those other two cities. And um, on top of that, an earthquake uh, which damaged the area in AD 60 uh, really uh, put a hampering on Colossae as a whole itself. These prosperous citizens of Laodicea, they began to rebuild their city immediately uh, they got aid from the government. Areopolis was restored as well. Um, but not long after AD 60, Colossae, they were done. They lost the race. Uh, people were looking for health benefits, pleasure, relaxation. They'd go to Areopolis. If you were looking to make money, trade, politics, you'd go to Laodicea. And um, even today, if archaeology, or we could go, and, and look at uh, the the ruins of these cities and Laodicea. The ruins are still very extensive even today. You can see um, two theaters, a gymnasium, an aqueduct, a large cemetery, stones from the eastern gate. Um, Areopolis as well um, has a lot of ruins that are still there. Although uh, people are going there, I don't know if it's developers or the government, and they have taken... They take a lot of these big stones and fancy things out of there, and they're using them to build air, other areas of of Turkey. Um, matter of fact, the theaters that they found in Areopolis, two of them, uh, one of the Hellenistic period and the other of the Roman period, even today those are known as the most perfect theaters in Asia Minor. But Colossae, in 1835, an archaeologist went there and he found just a couple of foundations of buildings, some fragments of cornice work, and uh, some peculiar stones in the cemetery region. And uh, most of that has disappeared today as well for the building of other portions of, of the country. But then the people, the people of Colossae, it was populated by natives of, of Phrygia, pagans who worshipped various other gods, and uh, a mingling of Jews as well. Um, so you got this heathen pagan population with a mingling of Jews. Uh, Antiochus the Great in 187 B.C. brought in 2,000 Jewish families from, um, from Babylon to populate the area. And if you know, if you got 2,000 families, then you know, you're well above 5,000 people there. Um, 
the traffic and dyed wools and other business prospects acted like a magnet, as you can imagine. I mean, have you ever wondered why, I, you know, big cities like Atlanta, I mean, we hear the news, right? You know, so-and-so corporations moving to Atlanta, you know. My thought, why? Why, you know, would you do that? I drove to Vidalia, Georgia and back Friday, and, you know, there's no way to go except through Atlanta. And I thought, why, you know, can't you take some of these businesses and move them out to the rural areas? And, you know, I was so pleased with uh, Academy Sports. Uh, we don't have one around here, but... Um, they just opened one on Barrett. Did they? <laughs> and an area you can't even get to, right? <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, but... But, uh, yeah, I think I know on 41 and Barrett, I saw them building that. But it looks like their distribution center is down there south of Macon, right? I mean, on I-16 where there's nothing. And I thought, well, look at that. That makes sense to me. You provide some jobs. But nonetheless, people are drawn to magnets to um, to commerce-type areas, which this was. So here they come, right? By the year 62 B.C., uh, in the single district of Laodicea, there lived at least 11,000 Jews. And um, we know from the book of Acts in chapter 2 that the, from, uh, the Jews from uh, this area were present at the day of Pentecost. And since this is where it really gets interesting for the book of Colossians or the letter of Colossians that we'll be looking at over the weeks ahead, is that this was a pagan city with an intermingling of Jews, then we shouldn't really be surprised at the danger of the church that is planted there, right? Because you got this influence from these two sources, paganism and Judaism. And when those two things come together and then they have an impact on the church, you can imagine all that's going to spring forth from that. So the church and its founding, the lot of stuff that just you could read from now till you die and be with the Lord about was Paul ever in Colossae? And according to some, he never set foot there. According to others, he was there a lot and he spent tons of time there and he founded the church there. But, um, you know, he, my conclusion was he may have passed through there on his third missionary journey when he traveled from Antioch to Syria to Ephesus. But in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, verse 23, and 19, 1, there's no hint that he founded any churches on that third missionary journey. He was, he was simply encouraging the disciples as he would go. And on top of that, chapter 2, verse 1 says... And this is where it uh, um, really gets interesting to me. Um, You know, if I can't read this and take it for what it says, then we're all in trouble, right? And I particularly am. But chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So how could he have been there and started the church if he's saying that, you know, that I haven't seen you face to face? So um, I go with the fact that um, he did not start the church there. Um, So it could, however, have been that, that 
among the many who came to hear Paul when he labored in, in Ephesus, there were people from this region. I think that's where it came from. It must have been during this period that the church was established, and Paul had lots of friends there, Epaphras being one, having been saved through Paul's preaching. He was probably the founder of the church, most scholars believe, in chapter 1, verse 7. He's writing to the church, and he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So it kind of seems to fit there that he's probably the, the one that started the church in Colossae. He was a Colossian, chapter 4, verse 12. He was a servant of Christ, chapter 4, verse 12. He was a fellow prisoner of uh with him, with Paul, and you see that in Philemon 23, he was a hard worker in the three neighboring congregations, Areopolis and uh, Laodicea, and that's in chapter 4, verse 13. He was vigilant in prayer and loyal to the point of being willing to suffer hardships. Um, and then there's three others mentioned, Philemon, Apaphia, and Archippus. And since these three are mentioned together, it's really interesting. Uh, in Philemon 1, they're mentioned together. Um, most scholars believe that they were at least related. And I think it's safe to say John MacArthur says that Philemon was the husband and, and the father of Archippus, and uh, Paphia is the mom and the wife of, not the mom of, Philemon, but the mom of Archippus and the wife of Philemon. So that's interesting, the whole family there. And then uh, one of Paul's other uh, uh, connections, friends there, was Onesimus. He was Philemon's slave. And then, you know, these are just some of the friends that Paul had that he mentions in the letter. And after his ministry had been completed, he... uh, he left for Troas, and you know the churches were still there that that were um, that he was writing to. Um, this moving into Paul's arrest, we can see that after he left that region and crossed the Aegean Sea, he came to Macedonia, and from there he went to Corinth, and from there he reversed his course and proceeded back towards J- Jerusalem by the way of Macedonia, and then he meets. This guy named, or I don't know if he met him there, but he meets up with him there, Tychicus, a Christian from the province of Asia. And he's the one that would travel in advance of Paul. And uh, he was waiting for him in that city. You can see that in Acts chapter 20. So when Paul arrived in Jerusalem at the close of his third missionary journey, he's falsely accused and he's arrested. And now his imprisonment that we all know about Starts And that lasted about five years, started in Caesarea, ended in Rome. And it was during this imprisonment that Epaphras, the minister of the Colossian church, makes this trip some thousand miles to be with Paul. And he gives him a report which, for the most part, was, well, maybe not the most part. He starts giving him a report that was favorable. And we see that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. But he was also told, Paul, of a a painful situation because of this pagan and Jewish 
mingling that had worked its way into the church. Now we get to the, the perils of the situation. So we got to keep in mind that this consisted in a, in a Gentile world and um, an unbelieving world. I think it would be like if we, if we went and, and uh, started a church somewhere in a completely pagan culture that had a smattering of some kind of false religion in the area as well, and both of those two things kind of mingled themselves into the church, you know, what would we expect to hear from somebody that was ministering in that church if they came to visit us? Well, you know, a handful of the guys are really doing well. You know, they pray for you a lot, and they... They're, they're sharing the gospel a lot, and we're seeing some really good results. But, right, all of that mess comes in. And I'm telling you, I don't know if you all have ever been to portions of the world where it starts to come in like that, but it does. It's, it's, it's weird how it does, but isn't that just how Satan operates, right? I can remember the, the uh, I can't remember if it was the first or the second time I was in Peru, and I felt like I was in this kind of an area. Uh, it was the second time I was there, and we there. This guy had come in to the Cotahuasi Canyon, and he was um, he was very very charismatic, you know, and to the point of if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not saved like that, you know, and so he had, he was having a great influence on a lot of the uh, small village churches. So these pastors came to us, we were staying with Brad and Gina, our missionary friends, and, and these guys come every Tuesday to his house for training, and so they're there, and they're saying, well, this, this guy's out there, and he's talking this and talking that in the churches, and, you know, what do we do? And um, they all looked at me and said, what do we do? As if I had a clue, you know. And I mean, I was dumbfounded. I, I just started praying, Lord, please help me. And we had a couple hours that afternoon prior to going to these villages. So um, I think it was myself and Bruce Neiman and Jay Cribb. And we were just praying, Lord, guide us and how you would have us speak to these men, the the strong Christian men, and how... They can refute, and the passage that kept coming back was how Paul was wrote. To, I can't remember who it was he wrote to. It's in Acts where he says, "I, you know, I I labored night and day for you, you know." And, and these guys had really labored for their people like that. So we're out in this village at night, and these guys. This was so cool. We're sitting in this house that was a, probably half the size of this room, dirt floor, adobe home. And um, candlelight, no electricity, and these guys are writing a letter to a neighboring church. This was in, uh, we were in Sunni, and the church was in the other church. This guy was going there next week, and it was in a town called Puica. And so they're writing this letter. And then the conversation, you know, we're, we're showing them scripture to put in there, and, you know, the, the, uh, where Paul talks in Acts about, the um, the sheep and uh, wolves and sheep's clothing, you know. I mean, that's I was like, wow, this is real. This is Book of Acts stuff. And and then we're like, well, how are you going to get it to the p- church in Puica? 
Well, the guy's house that we're in, his son, that's where he goes to school. Their village was too small for a school, so he rides his mule over to Puica every morning, and he's going to give it to the pastor tomorrow morning. And I'm the, I mean, I was bug-eyed. I was like, this is real stuff here. And that's what's going on here. And it goes on all over the world, right? That's why it's so important for you and I to be sound in our doctrine, to know what the scriptures teach. That's why that biblical counseling conference is important, right? So that we can, when we see error coming into God's church, that we can, we can battle that. So you got this pagan and Jewish falseness coming into the church there and Paul is going to confront that in the letter that that he writes back to the church there he doesn't want them to fall back into the paganism that's going on fall back into right that's where they were prior to the church so the question pops into my mind why is it so easy for us, sitting right here, right now, for believers, why is it so easy for us to fall back into, maybe not paganism, but, you know, that former life sometimes? Why does that happen? I Go ahead, pardon? It's familiar. It's familiar? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times guys that I counsel in addiction tell me when they get back home, Right? Oh, I was so grounded. I felt so good about what God was doing in my life while I was there. And now I go back home, and the rubber meets the road, if you will. You know, what, what do you do with that? You know, I had a guy call me yesterday. I was shell-shocked. You know, this guy has been in ministry, came out of that lifestyle, pagan lifestyle, just like these people. And been in ministry for years, and um, and he called me and told me he has relapsed. You know, and how? How does that happen? Do we think we're above that? You know, so Paul writes a letter like this, right, to these people. So to guard them to where they don't fall back into their, that pagan lifestyle or that they don't have this, the Jewish religious practices come in and infiltrate what the Word of God is teaching. Because, you know, I mean, we oftentimes we lose sight of the fact that the religion, the Jewish people are very religious, no doubt about that. But, I mean, they don't believe in Christ. So, really, are we really going to put them in the same world as us? Right? Or even, you know, we got this year, 2017, the celebration of the Reformation. Do you know what that really meant for us? Here we all sit that we're not underneath that false religious system anymore because of some men that stood for the truth. You know, really obscure guys. You know, these weren't famous people that were doing this. They were, they were ordinary Joes, to some of them, you know, that put their lives on the line in the 1500s, 1600s for, you know, for the Lord, but... Here we are in 2017 reaping the benefits of that and get to go to conferences and celebrate the 500th birthday of that, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, just guarding that, you know. So I, I guess next week, since we're supposed to stop, stop in two minutes, we'll look at a little bit of the paganism of this and then get into the introduction of the actual text with that. So, um so any further comments on that? Why, you know, again, why does why does the the old look the old familiar? Why does that look so attractive 
attractive to us again. What do you think? It's easier. It's easier, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, this Christian life thing didn't become hard till you became one, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a whole lot easier just to live out there and be a pagan. To, um, but yeah, you know, just think, you know, if you call it relapse into sin, it doesn't, when you use the word relapse, it sounds like, you know, you're definitely talking about drugs or alcohol, but that's not the case at all. That's really, what is relapse? You know, that's the dog returning to his vomit, you know? I mean, did you, when you really think about that old life that we all say it was easier, you know, do you really want to go back and eat that, you know? I said to a guy the other day, I was counseling with a guy, and he was struggling. I said, why don't, we just came, we were at a restaurant, and we had finished, and we were back counseling. And I said, why don't you just go over here and throw up? Just do it right there. I don't have to worry about cleaning it up, because you're going to go over there and eat it. You know, I mean, that's graphic, but that's what we do, isn't it? When we revert back to that old way of thinking, and... That's Paul's warnings that he writes about here, and he, of course, exalts and puts Christ in the proper place, and when he's there, we're not going to go back to the paganism of the old. So, anything further? I, yes, sir. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and he broke it. He broke his soccer shoe the first five minutes of being there. I'm glad it wasn't bone. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So he's in Peru till Honduras. Honduras until February. Yeah. So hopefully he won't get sick or he won't injure himself. And this is kind of a weird prayer for him as well, but I know it's it's big to him is that the guys that live at his house don't tear it up while he's gone. <laughs> he's a smart young man, I'm telling you. He's a smart young man. He has a house and he, he rents it out to guys. It gives them a great deal, but it also uh, gets his house paid for. That's a, uh, but he really ministers through that. That is a real, real ministry. I had a guy graduate in the program last week that he offered a room to him if he wanted to stay here, and that's, that's huge. You know, but I know, you know, you could imagine if you're gone and you've got three young men roommates, what's going on in my house, you know. No shenanigans, but are they cleaning the kitchen? Are there going to be roaches when I get back and that kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, remember him. Anything else? Somebody else had their hand up over here. No. Maybe somebody standing up. All right, well, we'll put the chairs up and get to worship service.